Good morning, City Life Church. Good morning, City Lifers, friends, family, guests, streamers, anyone randomly listening to my voice. Good morning. Welcome to another Sunday. Welcome to church. So grateful that you're here. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Pedro Reese, and I'm the lead pastor here at City Life Church. Today we are back. Well, really, even before we go there, another late shout out to all of our moms last Sunday. Happy Mother's Day from the bottom of our hearts to you. Uh, I, I said this in person. I think I said it online too. I think that being a mom is the highest role a human can play in another person's life. And so thank you to all of our mothers. Happy Mother's Day. We hope you feel, lo- feel loved and special on that day. And so happy belated Mother's Day. And now today we are back in our mystery series through Ephesians. We are back looking at this beautiful, beautiful, deep book. This book that holds so much of our theology, and not just like philosophically, but how Christ wants us to to live our lives, to be challenged by His words, to grow, to not be stagnant, to like really just find this vibrant, beautiful, abundant, emotionally healthy life with Him and with one another. I hope that as we've gone on week by week, We've just been like, oh, I, I, when I first said yes to this man, to Jesus, I didn't know that all of this was a part of this, but that now that as we explore our, fra- our faith, I pray that um, it just looks different, looks more alive, more vibrant than ever before. And to know that there's, there's more, there's still always more to Christ. We will never get to the end of him. And so a few weeks ago, let me draw our attention to what we did a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, we started this mini theme in our larger theme, uh, but this mini theme where Paul and the Holy Spirit start telling us to start taking things off, start taking off the old ways that we used to live, the old you, our old selves. He wrote in Ephesians four twenty to 24, he wrote this, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard from him, heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put off the to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so from that week on. We've had this theme within a theme of like, what are we taking off? That I, I need to live for Christ. I need to change. The moment I said yes to him, I am a brand new being. And so I have to unlearn what I've been learning, what I've taught myself, what the world has taught me, what the kingdom of darkness or disappointment or woundings or abuse. I have to take all that off and put on this new clothes, this new walk that God gives me. And then we started talking about new relationship, right? If I am this new being, if I am a part of God's church that is so much bigger than I ever imagined it to be, if I have these new measures in my life to be evidence in Christ, if I have all of those, then I I need to let God come and tell me how to relate to the world because the, the, the next product of being new, of belonging to this community, of having these evidences to show that I it's... How, how am I showing this in my relationships and all the levels of relationships that we could have? You know, and we said going off, setting off on this theme, we said we were going to be about affirming that our faith affirms, that our scripture affirms, that Christ himself affirms these three statements here. The first one being the dignity of womanhood, of childhood, and of service. 
that God loves those things and he made those things and calls them good. We are from the equality before God of all human beings, irrespective of their race, their class, their status, their culture, age, or sex, that all people carry the image of Christ. That no part of our faith is about holding that for others and not for other people. And our last affirming statement said that all are created for deeper unity in Christian fellowship in God's body and in His family. And so we hold those to be true in every single level of our relationships to one another. And we also know that today we are going to be talking about slaves and masters. And we're not going to go there timidly. We're not going to go there shy because there's nothing about our faith that we should be ashamed of. That we know that our faith, that being belonging to Christ has often been co-opted by people who never knew Christ. People who would defend the institution of slavery never met Christ. And we can say that with certainty because of passages like today. And so we're going to jump right on in. We're going to be in Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9, to really be looking at how does this faith in Jesus affirm the value of all people? How does it radically change the way we live our relationships, even in the most, some of the most painful, like the idea, the institution of human slavery? Last year, I I heard a pastor say this quote, and I liked it. Just because someone identifies with Christ doesn't mean Christ identifies with them. And so how do we as new people, as these new believers in him, how do we evidence that our relationships are different? And so let's address slaves and masters. First, let's pray. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to be with us, to be with the preaching of his word and the hearing of his word so that God can do something powerful in all of our hearts to bring us all liberty and and fellowship like we're going to talk about later today. And so please uh, pray with me. Jesus, I thank you for this day. I thank you for how good you are. I thank you for how kind you are. I thank you for how merciful you are. I thank you that you are also so capable of doing all of the big things of removing all of these corrupt things that we as people find ourselves and bring ourselves to, Lord. I pray that you would speak to us about slaves and about masters and tell us how the gospel just completely obliterates those ideas, Lord. I thank you that you are our only true master. And so, Lord, help us to hear your word and do, put it in some place in our hearts where we can do something responsible with it today, grow in our understanding and, and faith in you. I pray all of these things things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read God's word. Again, Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9. Guys, we're almost at the end of Ephesians. This is quite exciting. Remember, this is the last week we're being told to take things off. And so let's read God's word. Starting in verse 5, it says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ." Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality in him. Amen. As I looked at this passage and I was like, okay, well, we're going to jump right on in. Let's see how we do this one. 
Let's see what God's really saying here. I felt like we needed to first take this, uh, take this picture of what slavery was in the ancient world. It's not exactly what we have come to know today. It's not the consequences of what we're suffering today. It's slightly different because the institution of slavery in the Roman world was almost their entire society. Let, let, let's hear this. Aristotle, right? Aristotle, you hear that name and you know, oh, okay, this guy was one of the most brilliant men that ever lived. The height, maybe even the height of human intellect, human knowledge, human logic. And this is what Aristotle said about slaves. And I share this because this was the ancient perspective, the ancient worldview on slaves. He he writes this, a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. That captures the perspective of a slave in the ancient world. A tool. Aristotle would look at a slave and he would say, oh, I see a hammer. I see that slave. I see a screwdriver. To me, it doesn't matter. I don't see a person in that. He, the best, the kindest thing that Aristotle ever wrote about slaves was that a slave is, kind of, is a kind of possession with a soul. Aristotle, the guy, the one that a lot of people point to, says, you know, they're kind of a a person, kind of has a soul, like, okay, maybe they're a person. And this is what the ancient worldview was on slaves. Uh, A popular, uh, an important Christian theologian, uh, Westerman, he writes that at any point in the Roman Empire, At any given point, there were over 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 60 million slaves. 60 million slaves. At any point, the Roman Empire was built on the foundation of 60 million slaves. Westerman also writes that if you went to any of the cities in Rome, any of the big cities, you would run into more slaves than you would free people. Imagine walking down the street in Rome and an overwhelming amount of people that you see are slaves, property of another person. How crazy is that? How unthinkable is that? How just, it wasn't a, an institution in society. It was society. Slavery was just normal. And it wasn't like our modern slavery. It was built to subjugate people to racial dominance. It wasn't, there was that as well usually from fighting from war, but it was more like anyone could find themselves into slavery. Doctors, lawyers, thinkers could be slaves. So it wasn't just the poor. It wasn't just victims of war. It was this institution that was inescapable in the ancient world. The pater familias was the the patriarch of the family, right? The the big guy, the big daddy who ruled over the family. The, The pater could... At any whim that he had could kill one of his slaves and have no legal repercussions from it. And yet, this is the backdrop of when Jesus comes. This is the backdrop of when the gospel starts to grow. And so we can rest assured that we have a faith that has never legitimized slavery, never legitimized this type of enterprise, but has been at the center of abolishing it throughout history, and God's call to his people has always been about restoring family, as we're going to talk about today. 
And so let's start where, where Paul starts. Let's start talking to the slaves. What does Paul and the Holy Spirit have to say to the slaves? Let's read verses 5 to 8. Most of this is reserved for the slaves, which communicates a lot about the heart of this. Paul writes, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a, with a good will as excuse me, to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Here, this is what Paul is saying. Paul, like, Paul has captured the heart of God here, and he's like, I am so concerned with my brothers and sisters who are in slavery. Let me give them four instructions, four things to do, four Christ-centered things to do. The first thing is to be obedient as to Christ. Be obedient, not like you're serving this person, not like this person is your Savior, but as Christ. Be obedient to Christ. The second is behave as a servant to Christ. You know, you're not serving this person, you're serving Christ in your act of service for whatever reason got you into this place. Be a servant as if you're a servant to Christ. Render service to the Lord and not to man. It's not about people pleasing. In the ancient world, the slave master was flattered all day, every day. We talk about a bloated eagle, ego, not eagle. Um, (laughs) But render service as if you're doing it to the Lord, not to man. And then the last one is that, you know, whenever you receive good, whether you're a slave or you're free, it comes from God. And so live this life, live this honest life. Live this life like you're doing it for Christ. All of these commands are so Christ-centered. The fact that Paul in the Roman Empire would even include in his letter uh, instruction to slaves is already remarkable, revolutionary, even just in that. But he's saying, you know what? He had such a heart for those who are under authority and in the wrong way. He's like, "Let, let me give you these guidelines to live your life, to limit your struggle, because you know what? God hasn't forgotten you. He's working on you over here. But just for you and your heart, first thing is freedom in your mind and your soul. That God, you are not a slave in your soul and in your spirit. And so he gave them these instructions. Jesus, the man that we build our whole whole faith around, the one who we call the savior of our lives, of our souls, that he's not saying to these slaves, you know what, just... This is your lot. Deal with it. Just get to the end and you'll get to heaven. No, no, no. But that we have a Savior who started his public ministry by reading in a synagogue Isaiah 61. We find it in Luke chapter 4, 18 and 19. The first public words that Jesus said as, a, as minister Jesus says, I am starting my ministry right now. I have been anointed by God and this is what I have been anointed for. His mission statement is this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so at the heart of this, we see that our Savior, the one that we build our whole lives in, the one that we say that we are changed through and through every part of us, that I am a new creature, is to someone who goes to all the slaves and says, I'm going to liberate you. My movement is about your liberation. 
I care about your lot in life. I care about the struggle that you go through. I care about when you're being oppressed. And so let's see how God manages to do this, how God first tries to liberate the hearts of the slaves and then talks to the masters like no one would ever dare to in the Roman Empire. Masters. Let's read verse 9. Verse 9, masters only get one verse in here because God wanted to speak to slaves more. But he gives us an important reference here. He says, masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality in him. This is so great. This is so revolutionary. This is so would not happen in the ancient world. If not inspired by the Lord, then a loving Lord, then this would never make it into our scripture. So far, we've been talking in these three weeks about uh, relationships, new relationships. We've been talking about authority, right? Husbands and wives, we looked at authority. We said that our line there was authority given, but not called to be exercised. That, yeah, there is something to the way God has ordained families, that there is something to the male headship. But he says, you know, do what Christ did. And so when do we ever see Christ lord his authority over his bride, which is us, the church? But no, you know what he said, the solution here to this new world that God is creating is husbands. You have authority and so die. Give it up. Die. Mutually submit to your wife. Make your life about creating this nurturing environment for your wife to know the Lord. And then we talked about parents and kids, parents and children. And we said, okay, authority given, right? Parents should have authority over their own children. Authority given, but measured and limited. And so there's clearly authority. This world should not be run by little kids, but it's limited, Paul says, you know, nourish your children. Your, your parenthood is about nourishing children for two things, to, to know their God and to be the person that God has made them to, to raise them in this safe, beautiful environment where they can grow up to be the people that God made them to be. And so authority given but measured and limited. Don't provoke your kids to anger. Don't be a stumbling block over your kids. Give them, feed them, the whole, feed them good things, God. And then today, when we're talking about masters and slaves, we're saying that it's authority had, right? Not given. That God does not give the authority of slave owning to another person, but because of our human experience, it's authority had to be turned into family. The biblical response to slavery, the answer that the Bible gives us, is to turn it into family. And so let's break that down and see how God does that first by talking to the masters. Three revolutionary things, warnings that he gives to the masters. He says, number one, do the same to them. The goal, a paraphrase of the golden rule, right? He's like, what would happen if your slaves started to treat you the way you treat them? Is Christ in that? Would you like that? Do to them as you would have them do to you. Examine your life. Do you think owning another human being fits that standard? The second one is stop threatening. It's like, when has Christ, our master, we only have one master, Jesus. When has Jesus ever threatened you? When did he ever do that in his life? When is he ever in your relationship together? Stop threatening as if you're their master. We know that legally you have every 
recourse to even kill your own your own property but man, stop threatening that it does not belong to Jesus that is not in the family or the body of Christ remember this letter is written to fellow believers so this letter this is not about like pagan slave owners it's about christian slave owners stop, stop threatening when has Christ ever done that to you and then the last warning that he gives is that Jesus hey remember Jesus remember that Jesus guy not only is he your master, but he's their master. That the Jesus, the one in heaven, the, the perfect one, the one who is the king above every king, the one who created everything, that you equally have rights to him that your slave does. And in a world where slaves weren't even considered to be people, it's going to rock the boat. And in these three warnings, these three major, huge warnings, there are also three qualities to the heart of God that are at the center of who God is. The first one being equality, right? Treat them the way you would want to be treated. If they treated you the way that you do them, like, which, does that shout equality? The second one is justice. Stop threatening them. That's not justice. You using violence, you using the power that you know you have in your back pocket whenever you want to pull it out. Stop doing that. Stop threatening them. You're a child of Christ and you're doing that to another child of Christ. And so what are you doing? How, how are you doing this? How is this being legitimized? And then the last one is brotherhood, family. That Jesus is their master and my master. And that this is the answer to slavery to inequality that we see in scripture. So let's just, we're, we're exiting Ephesians right now. We're jumping right into one of the most powerful parts that in scripture that talk about slavery. Let's talk about Philemon for a second. Philemon is the shortest of Paul's letters in the New Testament. It's also the, inter- interestingly enough, it's the only one where Paul doesn't explicitly mention the cross, Jesus' death and resurrection even though to me it's the one that Paul models the cross more than any other. This is the story. If you've never read Philemon, I encourage you to read it. It's one of these stories in our Bible that makes this book more than just some collection of books that humans put together. No one in the ancient world, no one even today, assembling the scripture would put this if not for the Holy Spirit. Philemon is this just beautiful story about the worth of, of people, of individuals. And this is the story. Paul is writing to uh, this a partner that he has, this beloved friend that he has called Philemon. And this man, Philemon, is a slave owner, fellow Christian, a fellow brother, a fellow partaker in Christ. And the, the, the struggle here is that Philemon was a slave owner. And he had this one slave in particular, his name was Onesimus. And Onesimus, we don't know what he did, but he did something to Philemon. And then he ran away. We don't know what it is. It's probably not important that we know what it is. But this Onesimus finally somehow gets his way. He ends up with Paul. And Paul brings him to Christ. And Paul calls himself uh, Onesimus' father, his father in faith, because he is his son. Because he brought him to Christ. And so he wants to take care of his son. And he knows that a real life of freedom in Christ isn't running away from Philemon his whole life. So he's like, okay, let me write this letter, and you're going back with this letter. You're delivering this letter to Philemon. And this is what the letter says. This is so important. In verse 6, he puts in in a little seed here. In verse 6, he says, I pray that your partnership 
with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Paul here, he, I, I think he was writing most of this letter like winking to himself, like, oh, heavy suggestion here. He's saying, no, I, this partnership that we have, I pray that it's effective in deepening your relationship with Christ, that you are day by day becoming a better follower of Christ, that you better understand what he's doing, that you better live it out, right? And he uses this word, um, partnership, which in the Greek is so much more special. It, you, you might have heard this word. You might have heard this word in a super cheesy Christian sermon. You might also have heard this word on a hipster pastor tattoo somewhere. Um, I don't know which side of that scale I fall on. Uh, hopefully not too much in any one of those camps. But the, the Greek word here is koinonia. Koinonia is one of the most theologically significant words in the New Testament because this, it, it means so much more than even its just definition. Koinonia is sharing or mutual participation, but it's just so much more than that. This is, this is the idea in the heart of koinonia. It's, it's that two or more people receive something and share it equally. And so the implication here is that like, here it's rendered as partnership, right? That this partnership that we share, like I only have it completely, if you are also doing it completely, that this fellowship, that this family that we have, this partnership that we have, the sharing the gospel and living it out, we only have it together. So if, you, if we're doing it together, so if you are koinoniaing with me, then we are receiving, that we have Christ together, we're partnering, that we're both growing and deepening and, and getting more at the heart of the gospel. And so Paul raises that. He says, if you have koinonia, I hope, I hope we have koinonia together. And then he turns to start talking about Onesimus. And in verse 17 and 19, he, he writes this. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If you consider us to have this koinonia, if we have this deep Christian fellowship that goes down to the soul that uh, pierces culture and society that says that you and I, even though we're not biological brothers, we are every bit as brothers. If we are sharing in this body of Christ, if we are partners, if you are my partner, then welcome Onesimus as you would me. If he has done any wrong, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me, Paul writes. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. And so Paul here is saying, you know, if you, if we have this koinonia, if you, we are truly partners, if we are family, if we are brothers, if we are in this brotherhood together, if we are in this family, this body, we've been preaching about the body of Christ this whole time, and Paul picks this idea up here and he writes it in Philemon. If we have this fellowship together, if we are truly partners, then Onesimus is your partner. How can you own your partner? How can you have your koinonia with, with this brother and, and reserve the right to kill him, to beat him, to oppress him, to not think of him as a person? If you have this koinonia with me, you have this koinonia with him. And so that's why racism, that's why na like nationalism, that's why xenophobia makes, it makes, it's anti, it's, makes no sense. I can't even find the word. It makes no sense with the gospel. It's antithetical to the gospel. 
that we are always called to have this koinonia, this soul level partnership, this bond, this familial bond as the body of Christ, that there is nothing that separates one and us from access to God. And, and we only live this life out if we're truly living together. And so here in Philemon and with this idea of koinonia, we recognize that we are all equal under Christ, even Philemon and Onesimus and Paul. These three characters, Paul, this mighty, insightful church leader, Philemon, this slave master, this man who owned other people, and Onesimus, the, the guy who had no recourse, no rights. He was a property of another human being. But that at the, um, at the foot of the cross, that we are all together that this Christian life calls us to free everyone in our bondage, to say, you know what, I, I can't be a slave owner. How can I own another person, another person that shares in the image of Christ? And I just cause to reflect on our own society, our American society, right, that lives with the legacy of how this country was formed and founded on the, bla- on the backs of black men and women, and so we think, if, not, if the answer is not family, is it legally, right? And we see legal, legally slavery is abolished in this country. Legally, there is no recourse for a human being to own another. And yet we see that the idea of slavery, that the idea of I'm better than you, that nationalism, that uh, injustice based on what we look like or any other factor circumstance that if you live your life like that that you might find out that you don't know Christ like you thought you did that you might find out that you actually have no idea who Christ is if you think that there's something innately about you that God loves more than anyone else that you reserve the right to withhold koinonia from anyone it's just counter to the gospel counter to the ethic of Jesus, the life that he lived. And so even in our own society where slavery is abolished, hasn't been replaced with family, and we have millions and millions of people in this country that would go back to slavery if we could, or who think that they're better than someone else just by the way they look or because they have an American passport. It just boggles the mind that so many of those people say that they know Christ. Paul, the same person who wrote Colossians 3, verse 11. Here he says, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Christ is in all people. That he is all of our masters. And that we are called to koinonia, this fellowship, this family bond. And that whenever we see that we are reserving that right from somebody, that there's something there we have to examine as part of who we used to be, this old self, this thing that keeps us from the fellowship that God intended and calls his children to accept. To pray like, Lord, remove this from me. You need to take this out of me. I was raised this way. This is the product of my parents or my grandparents the culture I was brought into, the time, the day, the age, whatever it is. Lord, this used to be a part of me, and I don't want it anymore. Take it away. That we so long for this partnership, this koinonia, 
where we are family with everyone who says yes to Christ. So let's conclude this a little bit so that we can take this and, and do something with it. We started off talking about how this week is the last week where we're told to take things off. Starting next week, we're going to be putting things on. God's going to give us things, armor, clothes, new things to do. And we're, we're going to receive those next week. But let's, this week, let's focus again on, on what it is that he's telling us to take off. And in these three levels of relationships, husbands with your wives, parents with your children's masters and your slaves, like, what is it that Jesus is calling us? How do we manifest this life that we are called to live? And so Paul, we read from Ephesians chapter 3, uh, sorry, Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, right? Let's read the first two verses, the two verses prior to that. Colossians 3, 9 and 10. He says, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. Church, that we would recognize that in all the areas in life where we carry authority, where we carry privilege, that we would be about saying, Lord, what do I do with this privilege? Lord, what do, what do I do to most honor you in the life that you've told me to live, this new self that you've told me to be? That we would acknowledge that every relationship that we have is an opportunity for us to invite people into God himself and koinonia, fellowship, soul level, equaling level, partnership, family. The answer in the Bible to slavery is family, is that we would acknowledge that we are all created in the image of God. And so how can I hate you? How can I beat you? How can I put myself above you? How can I withhold any privilege from you? Because you are my brother or you are my sister. That the call of this Christian life is to be so consumed with the one who is here to set all the captives free. And say, Jesus, I want to live my life the way that you instruct me to. So any area of my life that I have privilege, that I have been given authority, let me know how to live it with you. How to invite people into this koinonia. How I can, this koinonia can help me to dive deeper into presence and relationship with you. And so church, that, that is our call in this new relationship. Before we move on to putting things on, we need to take off everything that strips us from having partnership with one another. These relational feuds or big things like racism, hatred, fear of other people. Lord, that you would work in my heart. Remove anything that is not of you in there. I don't want to be able to see, I don't want to get to the point where I see you one day and you said, you know what, you missed all of these things. And so today we have only one prompt question. I, I, I just felt the need to only have this one prompt question. It's so much more than just a, a question to answer. It's something to examine the way that we live our lives. So let's just jump into our prompt question for this week. So our one prompt question today, right after service, we are going to be jumping into our MC calls. Join your MC calls and process the sermon together with one of you. The one question that we have today is, who do you need to practice koinonia with? This isn't like a a survey test answer, like, oh, everyone, no. 
Who in your life has God been calling you to practice partnership with, koinonia with, to invite into your life to be family with? It could be fellow Christians, and it also could be people that God has placed on your heart to reach for Him. And so the question again, who do you need to practice koinonia with? Who are the people in your life that God has told you, like, this is, this is who I want you to reach. This is who you need to practice. Or who have you been withholding yourself from? Who do you need to go and get healing from? Like, who do you in your mind and in your heart say, no, I am not partnered with this person? So as we pursue being healthier people, let's let God have the room in all of our relationships and our hearts and our souls to bring us healing so that we can say at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, I want koinonia with, with all my fellow believers. And I want to bring more people into this family so that we can have koinonia together, partnership, unity. And so church, we love you. Thank you for joining us this week. Join our MC calls. Join our prayer calls this week. Uh, we have our... City Life Beta coming up. Moy had the announcements there. We're going to be posting it on our social media. We love you all. Join the MC calls this week. We'll see you very soon. Love you all. Have a great day.